Welcome to Between Two Lips, a podcast dedicated to all things pelvic health for women. I'm your host, Kim Vopney, the Vagina Coach, and I am excited to share with you information from leading pelvic health professionals from around the world, stories from women at all life stages who have faced struggles and successes, and of course, I share a little about my own pelvic health journey as well. There is too much silent suffering associated with the female pelvis, and I am on a mission to change that. It's time we talk openly about a part of the body that deserves a whole lot more attention than it gets. Join me each week for casual and candid conversations that will both inform and inspire you to optimize your pelvic health for life. Welcome to another episode of Between Two Lips. I'm your host, Kim Vopney, the Vagina Coach. And in this week's episode, I am joined by Dr. Corey Babb, who is an obstetrician gynecologist. He's a Tulsa native who has dedicated his life to bringing awareness and acceptance to female sexual health. I found him on Instagram and really appreciated his transparency and his fun, friendly approach to female sexual health. Through his education and activism and empathy, he helps people feel heard and validated and empowers them to find answers in a complicated medical environment. In addition to being a board-certified gynecologist, he is a fellow of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, a North American Menopause Society Certified Menopause Practitioner, and a member in the International Society for the Study of Vulvovaginal Disorders. Dr. Babb is one of four providers in the world to have been trained by Dr. Peter Packick in the Packick Multimodal Botox Program under anesthesia. This revolutionary treatment program for moderate to severe vaginismus has been clinically demonstrated to permanently eliminate symptoms in over 90% of patients undergoing the procedure. Dr. Babb has collaborated with Dr. Packick on multiple research studies, including penning the definitive study, which established a five-point grading scale for vaginismus, published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, and as such, he is considered a leading expert in the field of vaginismus. Currently, Dr. Babb serves on the board of directors for Ishwish, is a reviewer for multiple sexual medicine journals, is a respected lecturer and educator, and has been featured in numerous national and international publications. At his private practice in Tulsa, Oklahoma, he sees patients from across the world and is passionate about illuminating and treating conditions that have been previously neglected or marginalized in modern medicine. We talked about vulvovaginal disorders, some of the more common ones that he sees. We talked a lot about lichen sclerosis. We also talked about a little bit about hormone therapy. We talked about treatments. For some of the more common conditions, we talked about low sexual desire. And I really wanted to get into hysterectomies. I really wanted to get deeper into hormone therapy. I really wanted to talk about pudendal neuralgia. But we became short on time because he just had so much to say. I had so many questions. And I've invited him back for a round two. So consider this episode, episode number one with Dr. Corey or part one with Dr. Corey Babb, and there will be a follow-up part two. If you have any questions that you want to have elaborated on from what we talked about today, please post it in the notes below. But I will be going more in depth with regards to hysterectomies, all the things that we need to consider with, with regards to hysterectomy and our hormone therapy and also pudendal neuralgia in the next episode. So stay tuned for that. But let's jump into today's episode. 
It was awesome. Hi, Dr. Bob. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. I would love to start with having you introduce yourself. I know I found you on Instagram, and that's where I follow you. (laughs) But I'd love for you to tell the audience who you are, where you practice, and what your areas of specialty are. Okay. Well, my name is Corey Babb. I am a physician in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the United States. I am a gynecologist by training, but then have done extra work and certification in the areas of sexual medicine, vulvovaginal disorders, menopause management, and hormone care. So I am the owner and only physician at the Haven Center for Sexual Medicine and Vulvovaginal Disorders, which is my private practice in Tulsa. Amazing. Well, the world of menopause is definitely exploding right now. And there are a lot of people looking for help and therapies, hormone therapy being one of them. And I I was speaking to somebody else the other day saying that being a vagina coach, talking about pelvic health, there's been an evolution and there's starting to be a little bit more freedom with regards to what we can say on social media and what we can put into ads And I actually feel that the menopause movement has played a role in helping with that because of genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So there's vaginal health being talked about a lot in that community. And I think that it has maybe played a role in helping open up the doors of conversation for other areas. Oh, no, I I agree totally. I mean, and this is something that, you know, we kind of in the sexual medicine communities struggle with all the mm-hmm. time is, is kind of the censorship you sometimes get on social media, you know, when you're saying, quote, unquote, bad words, exactly. you know, <laughs> so it's and it's ridiculous when you're just talking about anatomy or, you know, sexual, you know, intimacy or things along. Yeah, those lines. yeah, I have been shut down so many times because the word vagina is inappropriate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I would like to start with you mentioned vulvovaginal disorder. So maybe if you could start with what are the more common conditions that you treat? And there's a couple that I want to ask a little bit more specifics about. Sure. So probably the most common things we see in the realm of the vulvovaginal disorders are either kind of chronic vaginal or vulvar infections, and then also the skin conditions that affect mostly the vulva, but can also affect the vagina as well. Things like like in sclerosis or like in simplex, things along those. Yeah. So that was one that I, I wanted to dive into a little bit, a little bit deeper was like in sclerosis and the difference between the two that you just mentioned. So can you talk about what, what they are, what causes them, and then also what some of the treatment methods are? Yeah. So the, so there's three main lichenoid disorders of the vulva. So there's lichen simplex acronicus, which is basically the best way to kind of think of it is an, an eczema type reaction to the vulvar tissue. It, it causes significant itching and irritation, but it does not have any type concern about, you know, progressing to cancer or things along those lines, you know, and I mean this in the nicest way, but it's mostly more of an irritation to the patients as opposed to something to be concerned really about. Lichen sclerosis is a condition that that can affect pretty much anywhere on the body. You know, we see it on the vulva, obviously in my well realm, but I've seen it on the breast, on the arm, and it's basically an autoimmune condition. So the body's immune system is attacking, in this case, the skin. And basically what you see is an obliteration 
two of the main skin layers, the dermis and the epidermis, they, there's not as much differentiation between the two. And so you kind of get this, this area thickening. It can have kind of a glassy appearance sometimes, and it often will cause the skin to become hypopigmented or turn white or pale in appearance. Now, this one is typically presents with itching as well. And this is itching that, you know, may wake you up in the middle of the night type itching. And it can lead to kind of fissures or cracks in the skin. And if it goes untreated, it can cause significant alterations in the actual anatomic structure of, of the vulva and can actually progress to a type of skin cancer. The third one is, is lichen planus, and this can affect the vulva as well, but it also affects the vagina. It also affects the mouth as well. So you're getting kind of more mucous membrane involvement, and it can cause extensive scarring, similar to, you know, type of kind of a skin reaction, like I talked about with the lichen sclerosis, but vaginal tissue, it can actually make the vagina stenotic so that nothing can, can go in there. You know, patients will sometimes, especially if it's really not treated, they'll be unable to insert even a, a Q-tip, you know, or cotton swab into the vagina because the vagina has basically sealed shut due to the scar tissue. And this one also has a, a malignant potential as well if it's untreated. So those kind of the main differentiation between those three. So before we go into the treatment piece, just a couple of things that came up. I guess the the thinking about the menopause community and vaginal mm -hmm. atrophy, vaginal dryness, the changing of the pH as we you know move beyond menopause and and you know further into our life. There are many people who potentially have lichen sclerosis but may not know it. It could potentially present similarly in some capacities, or even the lichen, lichen planus you mentioned, it could contribute similarly to atrophy and dryness and irritation. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, and that's actually, you know, it's a very common thing in our clinic. We have patients that come in saying, well, I'm just having vaginal dryness and there's some itching down there. And then when we actually see them, we say, aha, actually, this looks like more one of these, you know, lichenoid dermatoses. Mm -hmm. You're definitely right. And, you know, in terms of menopause and, and actually also prior to puberty, you see a larger percentage statistically um, lichen sclerosis and, and lichen planus to a lesser extent, but definitely lichen sclerosis than you do in a reproductive age person with ovaries. Mm -hmm. But it, it can, they, all of these can affect people of any age and, and any gender, you know, as right. well. So it's exclusive to that. But yeah, the hormone effect does play a role in it. So, so you can develop it at any point in your life? Correct. And is there typically, are there triggers that could, you mentioned autoimmunity with, with regards to mm -hmm. lichen sclerosis, that's one piece. Are there other things that could potentially trigger it? I mean, Obviously, the things that kind of go into the whole, and they, I think they all are, you know, lichen sclerosis and lichen planus. And if you view eczema as an autoimmune type condition as well, which, you know, I, I mm -hmm. do. So, I mean, that's going to be the big thing. You know, we see these conditions, you know, in families. Mm -hmm. We see them in people that often have other autoimmune conditions as well. So, you know, there's a genetic predisposition towards them. And then, like you said, there's got a, typically some event that triggers it. And, and that's such a unique thing that, you know, I can't give you a definitive for that. We've seen it with illness. We've seen it with hormonal contraceptive use. I've seen it with, you know, patients get a really bad yeast infection and then it starts 
So there, there's a number of things, but something that triggers that autoimmune response to really start that progressive destruction of that epidermal and, and dermal, you know, barrier right. there to cause that lichen application. And what is it that can lead to skin cancer? What is it about those two types that can yeah. be cancerous? Sure. So, so basically when you're having skin change, and so and, and let me back up. It, it's actually probably, this is a good time to really talk about, you know, what causes cancer in mm-hmm. general. So cells have a lifespan and at the end of their lifespan, they go through what's called apoptosis, which is, is programmed cell death. And so this is going on continuously in our body. You know, cells are being born, quote unquote, they're dying. And, and if, as long as things do what they're supposed to, that, you know, goes in, in harmony. Now, when you have cells that are rapidly tra- like turning over, you know, the skin turns over very quickly, just in general, you know, but if you have something that is causing a metaplasia, which is kind of a, an, a change in the cell type to where it, it may not it really shouldn't go that way, you know, but it's not problematic by itself or a dysplasia, which is a change in the cell towards a more abnormal, problematic or pathologic kind of state, the the more you have those events, the more likely those cells are to kind of ignore that program cell death mm-hmm. and then become cancerous. In the case of, of the vulva, especially with lichen sclerosis, we do see a high correlation with human papillomavirus or HPV causing those type of changes as well. So in patients that have LS who also have HPV, you know, that's kind of a maybe a predisposing agent towards a development of the squamous cell carcinoma, which is usually the type of cancer that we see. Interesting. And just to go back to the apoptosis and Another term that I have heard is is zombie cells or senescent cells. So are those the ones that are yeah. ignoring the programmed cell death? Exactly. Yep. Okay, so we don't want many zombies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So what do we do? Do these three have similar treatments or are they are they all completely different? They have similar treatments in that the, the gold standard of treatment for all of them is some sort of steroid cream, typically, or an ointment, you know, but some sort of topical steroid is, is the gold standard for them. Now, the lichen sclerosis and the lichen planus, we are often using ultra potent steroids for those. The lichen simplex, you know, you can get away with not as potent steroids with it and it will be controlled. So that that's kind of the, the common thread throughout them. Now, there are other things that you want to consider, you know, in, in postmenopausal patients, especially if they're not on any type of hormone therapy, adding, you know, vaginal estrogens and, you know, possibly even a, a estrogen testosterone combination to the vaginal and vulvar tissue can help the tissue respond better. But that in itself is treatment alone for the condition. Obviously, if you can find things that are autoimmune triggers and you and you know what those are, avoiding those can be really helpful as well. But, you know, that's also kind of an individualized type thing. But the gold standard is, is like I said, steroids. There are some kind of secondary therapies we can use, especially if the, if the steroids aren't working or patients aren't responding well to them. 
but that's what we're always going to start off with. And I, I'm not an expert in steroid creams, but one thing that sticks in my mind about steroids is that they can contribute to thinning of the skin. Is that correct? Right. So, and that's something that in this case, I don't want to say it's a theoretical risk, but if you are doing the steroid application properly, that the risk for that should be minimal. Okay. And when I say properly, you know, the amount we typically use an ointment for lichen sclerosis specifically because it is has a slower absorption time. It's you can cover more space with a little of like a smaller amount. Mm-hmm. So you really only need something, you know, actually smaller than a pea size. A pea size would be the most amount of steroid you would need. Mm-hmm. And the goal with it, you know, is kind of starting off with daily application of the steroid. And then once you get controlled in that, you know, you're not having symptoms, the architecture is starting of the, of the vulva is starting to return to normal. You can start backing off the amount of application that you're, or the, you know, going from daily to every other day to, you know, a couple times a week to, you know, once a week, even in in some patients who are really well controlled. So, you know, I have, I have yet to see skin thinning in a patient that is applying things properly. Now, if they're slathering it in there multiple times a day and there's other stuff, then yeah, you can, you can definitely have that. But if, if they're doing the way that, you know, we, we tell them to, then that risk should be very minimal. Okay. And then as you mentioned, a a question I did have, which you already answered is, can they use local vaginal estrogen or hormone therapy? So they can, and that could potentially help with some of the, the kind of offset, even if there was some risk, would that be accurate to say? Yeah. I mean, and that's a really good way to think about it. You know, one of the things we see since you brought up, you know, GSM or the genitourinary syndrome of menopause earlier, you know, what we see in those low hormone states is the tissue starts to retract and withdraw and become thinner and more easy to disrupt with penetrative activity or, you know, any type of really inactivity that may cause Mm -hmm. friction. And so adding that hormone therapy allows the tissue to kind of for lack of a better term, plump back up again and makes it more resilient to that as well. So you're exactly correct. And then if you have a postmenopausal patient, you should be having them on, you know, vaginal estrogens kind of regardless. And and there's a, that's a whole topic in itself to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I I would definitely recommend that. Yeah. And then, I mean, I feel like we have loads of evidence for the use of local vaginal estrogen around the start of menopause for the rest of our lives for many patients. Now, you talked about estrogen and testosterone together, and this was another question that I had had with regards to testosterone specifically, because it is difficult, at least here in Canada where I am, it's difficult to find a professional who will prescribe testosterone to women. There is no Health Canada-approved testosterone so it does need to be compounded and i've Mm -hmm. heard various conflicting recommendations with regards to where to put your testosterone cream some say sure absolutely put it on the vulva and others say absolutely do not put it on your vulva so you're saying that we could potentially mix the two and put it there and it would be not a problem right so so remember from an from a anatomic standpoint so the vestibule Mm -hmm which is, you know, the the external or basically the kind of reproductive tract, female reproductive tract is divided into three parts. So you have the vagina, which is the inside part. 
the vestibule, which is the area right at the very entrance to the vaginal, you know, vestibule, similar like you'd see in a church or in a, you know, a house or things. And the vulva is the external genitalia. So from an embryologic standpoint, the vestibule is an anatomic homologue to the part of the prostatic urethra. So that tissue is the same, whether you are an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome. And what that means then is that the vestibule has a high number of androgen receptors, so like testosterone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you have patients that are hormonally deficient, then especially if they have tenderness or irritation in that vestibule, you can do a lot with estrogen, don't get me wrong, or estradiol specifically. Mm -hmm. But, you know, adding that testosterone will actually be even more beneficial to helping that that tissue. You know, systemic testosterone, there's definitely, you know, pros and cons to that. And once again, if you, you know, there is a school of thought that, oh, well, if you're applying it vaginally, you know, you can have issues like with clitoral enlargement mm -hmm. or, or things along those lines. That tends to be very dose dependent. And so, you know, if you're doing so, and, and same here in the United States, we don't have, you know, there's no kind of approved form of testosterone for people who identify as women because, our, you know, Food and Drug Administration doesn't believe that that those people need testosterone, which is ludicrous because the ovaries produce four to ten times more testosterone on a daily right. basis than they do estrogens. So, but so you do, you're right, you do have to get it compounded or you can prescribe kind of a quote unquote male testosterone and then dose right. it for someone who has ovaries. But it, it's like I said, the, the safety with testosterone really is in the dose of it, not even so much as where you're putting it per se. And so. dosing is, you know, I, I hesitate to ask a little bit, but of course, everybody's going to say, well, what dose should I use? And obviously, right, right. it it's very personalized. And th this is not medical advice. Dr. Bab is not your doctor. But where right. what would be the what are the sort of standard ranges that may be appropriate for for women and people who identify as female? Yeah. So so basically, you're going to be looking at roughly one tenth of a dose that you would give for for men or people who identify as okay. men. So if you have, for instance, we used to do testosterone via injections and there is a medication called testosterone cypionate comes in a little vial. And there is one milliliter in that vial of medicine, and it's 200 milligrams per that one milliliter. So if you had a male patient, you would give him the one vial, that injection, that one ml. If you were to have a female patient, you would give them one-tenth of that, so 0.1 ml. So, so that's kind of the general point you want to think of. Now, in, in my practice, we typically start patients... At around a five milligram per 0.5 ml of transdermal testosterone. And then we monitor testosterone labs and we can titrate up as we mm -hmm. need. But that's about the smallest dose that I have seen that really can be effective in patients. And then, like I said, it, it can go up. You know, sometimes we have all the way up to giving a patient, you know, 20 milligrams on a rare mm -hmm. instance but usually that five milligrams will will start to to go into effect and and they'll see a benefit from that okay so i have other questions with regards to testosterone but i want to stay on ls for a couple of more questions the sure can things like hyaluronic acid be 
helpful. So that's, you know, a lot of people, especially as they're approaching and moving beyond menopause, find benefit in vaginal moisturizer containing hyaluronic acid. Is there any reason why somebody with LS could not use that or could it be beneficial? No, I mean, it it can definitely be beneficial. And I mean, there, there is, you know, nothing wrong with using a vaginal moisturizer Mm -hmm. at all. I mean, it can definitely help with vaginal dryness. And with LS specifically, we do recommend that, you know, if like you put, let's say your steroid on in the morning, then you also use some sort of emollient throughout the day as well to keep the tissue moisturized. So if you have a topical hyaluronic acid or, you know, we'll use sometimes coconut oil or Vaseline, or there's a thing here called A&D ointment. I mean, there's pretty much, you know, the the world is your oyster there in what you want to use for that, you know, kind of emollient moisturizer type thing. But yeah, hyaluronic acid's great. And the other, with the other one, the other thing or treatment therapy that I have seen recently that is talking about benefits for lichen sclerosis in particular is the O-Shot. Can you talk about what that is and have you seen that that is effective? Yeah. So the O-Shot is a trademark for basically what's called PRP Mm -hmm. or platelet-rich plasma. It was created by a, a doctor named Charles Runnels, and he kind of has popularized it for sexual health. So there's the O shot, and there's now the P shot for Peyronie's disease for, for penises, and there, there's other things kind of with it. But the thought is that PRP, or the platelet-rich plasma, basically the, the plasma that you would be injecting into the LS lesions has lots of growth factors and what are called pluripotential cells in it. And those are cells that can basically change into whatever they want. And so the theory is that that has, you know, will be helpful in reducing the cancer likelihood for LS and and healing the tissue. And the original studies for this that were done by Runnels and out at the Center for Verbal Vaginal Disorders in Washington, D.C., there have been subsequent studies, however, that have shown that actually it was not effective in reducing the cancer Mm. risk. So even if patients may have felt better, you know, the big thing with LS is, is, hey, we don't want you to get vulvar cancer. And so, you know, that's why the steroids have, have so far still been the gold standard of treatment for it. So, so O-shot is, was more thought of as the potential reduction in the risk of cancer, not so much in the treatment of symptoms. It, they were used, they were looking at okay. both. So they were looking, yeah. So they said, Hey, is this going to make patients feel better? And are we going to see the microscopic repair of the tissue mm-hmm. that would decrease the chance of cancer? And what they found is that while patients may feel better, they did not see that tissue repair like they had hoped in the subsequent studies. Right. Okay. And so, yeah, so you still have that risk. So it's one of those things that, you know, there, there's a lot of things that are out there that may make patients feel better with it. But, you know, the, the ultimate thing is, hey, are you going to have these long-term issues? So. And then last question with regards to this topic is vaginal DHEA. So you, you talked sure. about the, the kind of the, the androgen receptors and, and the uh-huh. DHEA, as I understand it, helps with the conversion of estrogen and testosterone and can be beneficial where hormones may not be indicated or, or chosen. So can this population use vaginal DHEA like intrarosa as well? Oh, sure. And, and, you know, since you mentioned, I mean, intrarosa is probably, you know, this is my own professional opinion. Like I see the, the most benefits with that medication for GSM and 
you know, just any type of hormonal thing. And I use it off label for other things as well. But like it, it's so yes, 100% you can get that benefit because you're exactly correct. You know, DHEA is a, is a pro hormone. So it, it will convert into estrogens and androgens. And so yes, you, you can see that effect there Got too. It. Are you allowed to say what the off label uses are? <laughs> I mean, I, I this is my you know, I am not a representative of pharmaceutical right. company for DJ, you know, for Andrew. So it, so I will use it actually a lot of times. So any type of hormonal vestibulitis, whether that is in a patient who is on oral contraceptive pills, a patient that was, who is nursing and is having painful sex, you know, pretty much any time I see hormonal vestibulitis, I prescribe Interosa or, you know, get it compounded if the patients can't afford it because I think that that the benefit there is is so huge right. and it doesn't have any systemic spread, you know, that we that we're aware of at all. I haven't seen any with patients with it. And so like it, it's, you know, I just seen it. It work right. miracles. OK. Yeah. And just for listeners who don't know, vestibulitis is like inflammation, essentially, at the vestibule you were talking about earlier. Correct. Yeah, correct. Okay, so I want to move into low sexual desire and, and this sort of transitions in some ways nicely. Painful sex or anything that can contribute to pain with or without insertion, with or without a partner is a big topic. I know that that sure. painful sex, especially insertive sex, can be challenging for people with the, the lichen conditions we just talked about. Who else could be experiencing painful sex but then I also want to kind of go into the low sexual desire and sometimes painful sex can contribute, but there's other reasons for low sexual desire. Right. So, so to answer the first question, I mean, painful intercourse and whether that's, you know, you divide it into kind of superficial or, you know, pain, whether, you know, with penetration or with even kind of, you know, exterior, you know, non-penetrative sexual mm -hmm. activity or, you know, with deep penetration the the amount of stuff that can cause it is is staggering right. you know we really break that down into is it something related to an organic like me or meaning like an organ related issue so something like you know interstitial cystitis or you know ir irritable bowel syndrome diverticulitis things like that endometriosis is another condition that you know the textbooks always correlate with painful mm -hmm. sex to things you know in the muscle so pelvic floor dysfunction where the pelvic floor is spasmed that can be really painful, or even if it's weakened, it can be painful too. Um, pedendal neuralgia, so it was something nerve-related. And then, you know, one of the conditions that we treat a lot of at my clinic is a condition called vaginismus, which is basically an uncontrolled spasming of the muscles right at the entrance to the vagina, which may, can make penetration, you know, almost impossible. Mm -hmm. And that can be, obviously, if patients are trying to, you know, grit their teeth and, you know, bear through it or whatever can can cause you know all sorts of trauma to the tissue and also psychologic trauma too and then that leads into a whole other set of of concerns so and it, it so the term dyspareunia is is often applied to pain with sex where there is some sort of touch or something being inserted and then as i understand it vaginismus is is almost the fear of that penetration because it potentially has been painful in the past or they anticipate it being painful is that is that accurate yeah so dyspareunia is basically an umbrella term so you know it's going to say there's pain with some sort of you know sexual 
penetration or and I honestly think we need to kind of revise it to even say external mm-hmm. sexual contact, you know, but I, that technically at the moment falls into the realm more of vulvodynia, which is another umbrella right. term. But yeah, yeah, vaginismus is is basically a, you know, pain with or with the anticipation of penetration. And you're right, a lot of times there's a panic response that's there. And so the those muscles spasm as a protective mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, if you come up so- come towards someone and, and, you know, in an aggressive stance and act like you're going to hit them, instinctively our muscles tense up. You know, we get into kind of either a fight back type stance or, or you know, a defensive posture. And that's what's going on in those muscles. It's, it's anticipating for a number of reasons that this is going to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those muscles spasm. Mm-hmm. So. And what would your recommendations for therapy be for, you've mentioned a few, obviously there's going to be different ones, but what are some of the main therapies that you would recommend? For painful intercourse yes. in general? So yeah, so I think the biggest thing and, and what we try and do here at Haven is really kind of get to the root cause of what's going on. You know, so if it is, for instance, pelvic floor issue, you know, if it's weakened pelvic floor, definitely pelvic floor physical therapy without mm-hmm. a doubt. If it's a hypertonic pelvic floor, so it's too spasmed, pelvic floor physical therapy. And then we also will sometimes do what's called chemo denervation or basically using Botox mm-hmm. to basically paralyze those pelvic floor muscles. If it's, you know, a, a nerve issue, then you want to try and treat the, the root of the nerve pain, whether that's spinal or, you know, more kind of end nerve so and you know that goes into things like pelvic floor physical therapy once Mm -hmm. again or doing pedendal nerve blocks if it's hormonal treat the hormones so you know once you know what the cause is then treating the cause can often be you know therapeutic or completely therapeutic you know curative even for pain but if it's there for a long time your brain creates these tracks in it due to this neuroscience term called neuroplasticity. And so it basically will always then, once those tracks are there, associate pain with sexual activity. So even if you take away the painful stimulus, then it's going to still kind of associate pain there. So you also have to look at the psychologic aspect of this as well. So if somebody maybe had been dealing with some sort of pain had that treated they found the root cause that has gone away and they still experience they were wondering if that was contributing to their low sexual desire but that was addressed so now they still have low sexual desire how do you how do you go about addressing that and treating that yeah so with pain i mean it's rather straightforward with it you know because obviously we don't want to do things as a species that that hurts usually you know so if, you know, if you have always associated sex with pain, why would you want to engage right. in sex, even if you take away the painful stimuli? So that's where the, you know, I like to refer to counselors that use some of the trauma-based mm-hmm. therapies like EMDR, which is eye movement reprocessing and or EMD, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Mm-hmm. Basically, a trauma therapy where you, you know, you take that trauma and you process through it so it's no longer kind of hanging over everything, if Mm -hmm. you will. And so I think that can be really helpful then because not only have you addressed the physical cause of the discomfort, but now you're also helping the brain to get back to where, hey, sex can be pleasurable, you know, or not painful at least. And then in true low sexual desire, 
There's mm-hmm. two I've seen you talk about and have heard. There's two medications. Call, one's called Addy and the other is Vilesi. When Correct. did those come into play? When would those be indicated? Is it a last resort, first resort? How do you address that? Yeah, so those came into, they were released on the market here in the U.S. in, in kind of the mid-teens, you know, 2000 mm-hmm. teens. So I think Addy was 2000, I think, well, I want to say 17, mm-hmm. may have been earlier than that. And then Vilesi was ar- around 2019. Okay. But don't quote me on, that's, it's around that okay. time. They obviously were in development a lot sooner than that. They are both approved or indicated from the, you know, Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S. for the treatment of hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or HSDD, in premenopausal patients. Now, they can be used for postmenopausal patients or, or you know, even in, in people who identify as men as well, and they're still really effective. It's just that, you know, the U.S. FDA is kind of, it has a really odd way of, of doing drugs for women and that you have to specify is this a drug for premenopausal women or postmenopausal and if you want to get both you have to submit a whole nother application for the wow. other one which is <laughs> silly yeah. you know but so that's so they work on neuro on the neurochemical side of low sex drive and with hypoactive sexual desire disorder specifically basically there's an incorrect interplay between serotonin and dopamine, which are the two main neurotransmitters involved with sex drive. So the, you know, brain is the most important organ for sexual desire and dopamine is a sexually excitatory hormone and serotonin is a sexually inhibitory hormone. And in a person who does not have problems with sexual desire, there's a normal, there's a, a, a a proper interplay between the two. You know, when you are in a situation where you may want to engage in in sexual activity, that, you know, dopamine goes up. And then when you're in a place that you don't really want to do that, you know, then that's, you get more kind of serotonergic effects there. Well, in HSDD, basically the serotonin is is always high. It's kind of like driving with a parking brake Mm -hmm. on, you know, so you can, it takes a lot to get going, but once you get there, you know, you can drive with it. And you, you know, but so it, it's kind of, you got to find a way to take that parking brake mm-hmm. off. And that's where those medications come into play. Testosterone is also indicated for mm-hmm. low sex drive. Would you start with that or would you start with these first or potentially even both? Yeah. So, so the nice thing about all of these is that they do play well together. Testosterone, obviously, you know, from a hormonal standpoint, you do get a rise in testosterone around ovulation, and that's an evolutionary thing. You know, obviously, you want to have sex and reproduce when you're Mm -hmm. fertile, but from a neurochemical standpoint, it's a dopamine analog. So that's kind of how it works to increase sexual Hmm. desire. So it's going to increase that that dopamine as well. You know, with testosterone, I think the thing you do have to be careful about is because you know, you want to make sure that the cause is secondary to low testosterone. Right. And right now, you know, or at least here in the U.S., if you look at the, the, I guess it's actually going to be in all North America, the North American Menopause mm-hmm. Society. So, you know, NAMS, their guideline for the treatment of low sex drive in postmenopausal women is to start with testosterone because they're not on hormone therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to see that ovarian decrease in production of sex hormones in general, including testosterone. So by supplementing it, you can increase that sexual desire. Hmm. 
And premenopausal patients, you know, you definitely would want to check testosterone to see if that is a cause. And if it is, okay, great, you can use that. But more often than not, that's not really the whole thing. Right. So I, you know, if you're going to use it, the other thing you have to remember is you have to monitor right. it. And some patients don't want to monitor it and some patients don't care. But I typically personally start with Addy and Vilesi because they play really nicely together and they're used in different ways. And then if I'm still not getting success and I have a patient with, you know, low testosterone, then I will add okay. that. So, so when you say play together, meaning you would put somebody on both medications or you would try one and see how it works and then potentially try the other one? No. So usually I'll start them on both, oh, actually. Wow, okay. So yeah. So Addy is taken every night irrespective of sexual activity. Okay. And it is basically inhibiting the kind of sexually inhibitory serotonin cells in your brain. And it's kind of exciting or what's called agonizing the more dopamine related serotonin cells in your brain. So it's a serotonin agonist antagonist is its actual classification. And so what it does is it makes you more receptive to sexual mm -hmm. activity. It's not going to make you go out and say, hey, let's let's mm -hmm. get it on. It's going to make you basically be say, hey, that sounds like that's fun. Let's do that. Whereas before you may have said, no, I'm not interested right. at all. So and it takes a little bit to kick in. You know, most patients will start to notice changes in about a month after taking it. And so like, you know, it takes a little while to work. The Vilesi, on the other hand, is an on-demand medication. So you're going to use it when you want to engage in sexual activity or you anticipate wanting to. And it's basically just a pure shot of, of dopamine. And so it's in a little injector, kind of like a, an EpiPen, you know, for people mm -hmm. to have anaphylactic reactions to whatever. And it lasts, you know, it, it, when it first came out, they said it was 24 or 12 hours. Now they're saying more than, you know, likely 24 or more. I have, in full disclosure, tried both of mm -hmm. them. And the, the Vilesi, it definitely works. Mm -hmm. I mean, but the main side effect that kind of about 30 to 40% of patients who are on it will get is headache and nausea. Mm -hmm. So you want to, and it goes so you, away. You want to get it on, but, but then you feel sick. <laughs> yeah. So, so I tell my patients, Hey, if you're planning to go out in the evening, take it like in the mm -hmm. morning or, you know, give yourself enough time for it to, to get that side effect off. Cause it kicks in in about 30 to 40 minutes. Oh, wow. I took it right before I went to bed. And I mean, it was pretty, you know, I was like, man, I do feel kind of nauseated here. I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning and I was, you know, I had no side effects at all. And I, you know, it, it, like I said, without trying to be crass, I was like, what's touching my genitals? And it was, <laughs> you know, so it's like hypersensitivity. I was like, this is, this is crazy. Like a wind blew and I got an erection type, you know, thing. So, and it was, you know, it definitely works. Mm -hmm. So that the Addy, its main side effect is it makes you sleepy. So you take it right before you go to bed. And so the first night I took it, I like slept better than I have in, you know, a long time. So I'd been on it for a little bit more than a month. And I, I mean, for me, it, and about 70% of people are responders to it. And I am, I am one of the responders as mm -hmm. well. So I'm like, you know, Hey, this is definitely kind of increasing my my level of desire. And like I said, the sleepiness, you know, I usually get between six and seven hours of sleep mm -hmm. a night, which I know I need to get more, but I, it doesn't make, I don't feel groggy when I wake mm -hmm. up in the morning mm -hmm. with it. So yeah, that's interesting. They were both, yeah, a success for me. So yeah. obviously that's just. 
So yeah, uh, but the sleep part is interesting too because in especially in the postmenopausal population, well, even in perimenopause, sleep is often a huge challenge. Oh yeah, so interesting. Okay, so. I'm not going to get a chance to get to everything, but I did want to come back to one more question about testosterone. And I think we'll have to have you back on here for a part two to get all the other questions that I had for you. But with regards to testosterone, coming back, you know, we had talked about that a little bit earlier. The part I want to ask is pellets. So I've seen lots of controversy as well on pellets. Some people say they're life changing and it's the best. You, You put it in and you don't need to think about it. And other people say it's dangerous because too high of a dose and it's slow release. So interested on your thoughts on hormone pellets specific to testosterone. So no specialty society that really deals with, you know, women's health or hormonal health recommends the use of pellets for women or people who identify mm-hmm. as women. And, and like you said, you hit the nail on the head there. The The issue is you d- you end up with these super therapeutic levels of testosterone, and that can definitely cause problems, some of which can be reversible when you come off of it, but others can be actually permanent. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen patients who come in, and, and don't get me wrong, patients typically feel wonderful on the testosterone, on mm-hmm. the pellets, especially, you know, while usually about the first month that they have them, and then they start to kind of notice that the fall in testosterone, then they start to get really irritable and and achy Mm. and angry and and they don't feel good until it's time for here's another pellet. And the the big issue though, like I said, I've seen patients whose testosterone is is higher than mine on with the pellets. And those patients, you know, they'll say, why is my hair falling out? Why am I getting acne? Why is my clitoris enlarging? Or I have one patient that has, you know, voice deepening permanently from it. When those virilization things start to happen, they're often not reversible. And so that is why I I do not recommend them. You know, with the the daily transdermal testosterone, we can get you to a steady state to where you're getting the same amount every day. And that testosterone level is really not budging much. And so that's why I, you know, prefer that. And that's the recommendation from both the North American Menopause Society, the Endocrine Society, and then also the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. That's kind of the preferred right. method. Yeah. Okay. And last question I'll ask for today anyway would be, can testosterone, if somebody, if it was indicated, we've tested their levels are low, they have some other symptoms potentially, could mm-hmm. increasing testosterone levels systemically or maybe even locally, could that, meaning local application versus systemic application, could that influence the strength, endurance, resilience, reaction time of the pelvic floor muscles? So people who have incontinence and that type? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So so the short answer is yes, you definitely see. And that's one of the things, you know, we see with patients, especially menopausal patients who go on systemic testosterone. You know, they say, you know, I feel stronger if I, I have more muscle endurance. If I am exercising, I can go longer without feeling tired. I'm not fatigued in mm-hmm. general. I have more mental acuity. So, no, 100%. It, it can be very beneficial for, you know, even it just like said for a local application, you'll still see some muscular improvement with it, you know, but usually... If you're doing those patients, or if you're seeing those, you'll probably put them on a systemic form right, of it. Right. You know, so. And I can attest. So I use systemic testosterone mm-hmm. and I can definitely attest to the more energy, more endurance. I don't get so fatigued. It, it made a really big difference for my sort of capacity throughout the day, if, if you will. So yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a user and a believer. 
Yeah, Yeah, but I I have a whole list of other questions. I really would love to have you back for a part two if you are open to that. I've loved this conversation. I I love your approach to it and I'm really grateful for you sharing your time with us today. So thank you so much. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. See you again. That's it for another episode of Between Two Lips. Thank you so much for choosing to spend part of your day with me. If you are enjoying the show, I recommend subscribing so you don't miss an episode, and I would also be grateful for a positive review. This will help get the information I share into the hands of more people who may not even know that help exists. Finally, I encourage you to take what you learn here and put it into action so that you can ensure that what you hear me and my guests share is not just lip service.